Hey, everybody. This season of Epiphany, we are studying the letters of our Lord, these uh, seven really short epistles to the seven churches of Asia Minor that are found right at the beginning of everyone's favorite book, the book of Revelation in chapters two and three. And of course, when you open uh, what is widely the most controversial and uh, most unclear book of the Bible, naturally, lots of questions come. And, um, and so to help with that, I have enlisted the help of a new friend of mine. His name is Austin Cagle, and he is a, uh, a Bible professor, teaches pastors and leaders and, and, and everyday people how to handle the scriptures rightly. And so I've uh, called him up just to ask him a bunch of questions on Revelation in hopes that it might help you. So without any further delay, let's listen in. Austin Cagle, thank you for joining us via the miracle of technology in the internet. Thank you, Drew, for inviting me. This is great. Yeah. Hey, we, uh, most, most everyone, um, besides, um, you know, a relative or two, probably doesn't know who you are. So would you uh, tell our church just a little bit about you, um, where you live, how you came to know Jesus, your ordination, what you do now, Veritas, you just kind of... Give us a picture of who Austin is. Sure. Um, I live in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is uh, a little bit outside of Nashville. Uh, and I've been a follower of Jesus my entire life. I remember my father, when I was very young, he was a, a pastor, a church planter, uh, an Anglican priest, actually, in the Reformed Episcopal Church. I remember going to him at a very young age, I think somewhere around seven or eight and uh, sharing with him how I was frustrated that all of my friends knew uh, the day that they came to faith in Jesus, and I, I didn't have a day. I, I said, Dad, I don't remember a day when I came to faith in Jesus. I've always believed in Jesus, and he mm. told me at that time, he said, well, son, that's because uh, you were baptized before you could remember, and we <laughs> planted you right smack dab in the middle of God's family, and you were in from the beginning, and if you wanted out, you'd have to fight your way out. <laughs> oh, nice. Wow. Uh, so I, I don't have a story of my conversion in that traditional sense. However, uh, as is often the case for those who follow Christ, there are some profound moments in my life where I had to make a decision to either uh, remain in covenant or to step outside and walk away. Uh, and uh, there were times when I certainly made the wrong choice and had to repent and return. So uh, I have been uh, converted and being converted and will finally, in the end, be fully transformed into the image of Christ along with all our brothers and sisters. So wow. uh, I've walked with the Lord my whole life. I'm, I'm getting ready to turn 37 tomorrow, actually. Uh, so. Oh, happy, happy early birthday. Well, thank you. Uh, I was ordained uh, two different times uh, by two different groups. Uh, I first started uh, working for a church in the Nashville area called Christ Church uh, in 2005 and uh, was ordained uh, just by that local church to serve there uh, in, for a number of years. Uh, but in 2012, I was ordained to uh, the diaconate uh, in the Anglican Mission and uh, later that same year was ordained as a priest 
and have been with the Anglican Mission serving in the Nashville and Murfreesboro area ever since. Uh, nice. My uh, primary work, though, is not in a local parish. Um, I teach every day for a local Christian school here in Murfreesboro called Providence Christian Academy. I teach Latin and I teach, uh, uh, well, anything that they need me to do. But this year, uh, medieval literature and uh, in years gone by, logic and ancient literature. So a lot of fun there. Uh, my primary ministry outside of that is for uh, an institution called Veritas College International. And uh, Veritas uh, has been around uh, since the mid-80s. And their mission is to equip the church to uh, raise up and release leaders into ministry. Uh, it operates now in 46 different countries around the world. And my role with them here in the United States wow. is I organize and, and run all of the training uh, for local churches here in the U.S. and also uh, coordinate the uh, master's degree program for them. Uh, so we focus all of our training around the handling of the Scripture, how do we rightfully interpret the Scripture, apply it into our lives, and communicate it with those that we serve and minister to. Uh, so it's very near and dear to my heart to be discussing mm -hmm. uh, the Word of God and, and how to live it out. Uh, that's pretty much what I, what I do. Uh, I'm married, I've been married now for 16 and a half years to my wife Tiffany, and we have three daughters. My eldest is 15. Her name's Moira. And then Sabra is 12. And Isla just turned nine. Nice. We have a Moira and an Isla in our church, little girls. Oh, wow. But we, That's rare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, the, you're the, oh, the second person I know with daughters. No, they're different families. But someday those girls are going to grow up and they're listening to this and think, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's why I, uh, see, so when we felt, I, for about eight years, I had this idea to uh, teach the letters of our Lord from Revelations two and th Revelation 2 and 3, and uh, I've always gotten the advice, don't preach on Revelation, because all the crazies were going to come out, and, and so I've just always kind of stayed away from Revelation. In fact, I've never heard a sermon from Revelation, I don't think, Um and so when I really felt like this was the season to do it, uh, had one person in particular tell me again, hey, you shouldn't do this, it's crazy. You're opening up a can of worms, it's going to be a distraction. You don't want to start the year off with uh, the craziest book of the Bible. And honestly, they had me thinking. I, I kind of went back to the drawing board and said, well, maybe I didn't hear the Lord, and maybe we didn't really discern this locally that well. And, um, and so uh, I prayed and it felt like the Lord said, no, this is what you should do. And, but I, I had this desire. I was like, okay, I, I'm not going to be an expert in Revelation, but I, I want to, I, I need to talk to someone who's smarter than me and who knows this more than me just so I can get a feel for the landscape we're walking into. And so I don't remember when it was in December, but I called you and you were nice enough to make some time and, and answer a lot, a lot of my questions. And uh, it was very, very helpful. So thank you for doing that. But one of the, the I was actually scared. You asked me before I, like, I really want to know, how do you see Revelation? How do you interpret this widely interpreted book? Um, before you told me how, how kind of you saw things or made sense, how things made sense to you, is you said, well, what do you say? 
honestly, I was very nervous to tell you because I, I did not, you know, from what you said, you teach pastors how to rightly handle the, the word and interpret things. And, you know, I, I didn't want to get shot down. And so I remember telling you, well, this is kind of how I see it. And I just laid it out there and as plainly as I could. And you said something to the effect of, I have good news and I got bad news for you. Um, and I remember you saying, like, the good news was, that's kind of how you see it, or similarly. But the bad news is, is not every Christian gracefully uh, listens to different interpretations. So yeah. um, could a- you <laughs> briefly just share kind of, you know, you don't have to get into the, the nitty gritty of it, but just kind of that, anything that comes to the mind from that conversation and, and really your experience with teaching the book of Revelation. Sure. How divisive it can be. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put my cards on the table too. Uh, the reason I turned and, and asked you to share your particular viewpoint is because um, I have had a number of experiences in my life where someone came to me with a question about interpretation and they were actually just looking for a fight. And mm. so uh, the reason I asked what uh, your particular viewpoint was was so that if that was the case, which I didn't think it was, but if that were the case, I would be able to quickly uh, set aside the uh, rules of engagement, say, hey, look, I'm, I'm in this hang up the phone. for learning purposes. <laughs> um, I do not, by any stretch of the imagination, see myself as an expert. And so when I engage with people around the text of Scripture, it's always in the understanding that we are on this uh, path and in this, in this process together trying to learn from the Holy Spirit what mm-hmm. He intends for us to glean from the text. And so mm-hmm. uh, my experience in the church around uh, the teaching of the book of Revelation and even just the discussing of it is people have uh, frequently come to conclusions already and they're entering into conversations with uh, an agenda. And so mm-hmm. uh, knowing those agendas up front uh, are, are helpful uh, and I quickly discovered from you that your agenda was to learn as is mine uh, mm-hmm. and also to grow in our, our knowledge of the Scripture. Um, my experience with this, I, I actually had uh, someone invite me to come to a teaching and uh, without telling me they, they recorded my teaching, uh, video recorded the teaching and then used it to uh, uh, basically start a, a campaign against me in a church. So I've seen some pretty mm-hmm. ugly things go on around this text that uh, uh, mm-hmm. it was never intended to be used for. So uh, grace right. is, the, uh, is the approach that I take and also the one I encourage. So I'm glad to be doing mm-hmm. it with you today. Well, well, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I was really encouraged by kind of the, 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 the pastoral encouragement you gave me, which was when we encounter people, that have different views and interpretations, um, it's best to be caring and full of love and very graceful and to take the, the, the posture of a student before a critic. And uh, I think our church is full of students. Now, I don't think we have very many um, people who are looking for fights theologically. And, um, and so I'm not really worried about that in our, in our case. But... But it was it was an, it was another reminder of like wow you know the the um, it's unfortunate I guess that that sometimes people will will turn to 
as if they have nothing else better to do is to get in fights about the scripture. And so I guess to, to those listening, um, you know, as we get into some different interpretations of it, um, you know, listen, you know, I'm 35. And so I'm going to say, this is what makes sense to me right now. Um, and, and that was, you know, but it's different than what I was taught in my early twenties. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm confident that that's what makes sense to me and how the Lord's revealed to me. But at the same time, I'm not, I don't think it's helpful to demonize or to call people, you know, heretics or, or to try to burn people at the stake because they have a different, you know, view of what is the most unclear book of the Bible to me. So, uh, love and grace and care, I think is, should be at the top of this conversation with anybody who's asking questions about Revelation. And so thanks for uh, reminding me. Would you kind of briefly share uh, what the, f- and I'm sure there's more than four, but what are the four like main or most common views or interpretations of Revelation? Absolutely. Uh, and again, like you said, because this book is, is something that has been a bit obscure uh, it's not just for us. It's not just obscure for uh, Americans living in, in the 21st century. This book has been considered obscure since it first showed up on the scene. Uh, and people have been mm. trying to determine uh, what exactly it means. And uh, there are actually differing approaches to interpretation as early as the second century. Uh, people discussing mm. its validity and, and, and how to handle it. Uh, but through the years, uh, through the, the millennia now, we've had uh, four major approaches that have uh, kind of taken uh, the forefront here uh, and in different ways of viewing the text. And then, of course, there are some people that kind of do a mix and match of the different approaches. Uh, the, the, they're not in any particular order here, but the, the first one uh, is the historical approach. And, and that view basically says that uh, beginning with the opening to Revelation, you have a story of uh, how the world is going to uh, go about being uh, brought to its inevitable end in history. Uh, and so uh, you can kind of track through uh, where, where in history things have taken place, and it, each of these uh, different components of the text uh, can be anchored to some uh, historical event, uh, and, and then, of course, it will play out uh, until its end. Uh, the, the preterist view is the second one. Uh, there, are, there are basically two components to preterism, uh, but the, the idea is that everything that is described in the book of Revelation has already been uh, fulfilled uh, so a preterist is going to read the text and see uh, at a very specific point in history uh, within that first century A.D. Uh, where this text is describing events that have all been uh, fulfilled. Uh, there are partial preterists mm. who believe that the majority of the writings of Revelation were about things that have already been fulfilled in the first century A.D., uh, with the exception of the final return of Jesus at the very end of Revelation, which is yet to uh, uh, happen. Uh, But a a full preterist actually believes that uh, Jesus' second coming 
was a spiritual coming and that we're actually living in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a very interesting uh, interpretation of Revelation. Uh, the third one's probably the most well-known, uh, if not the most commonly held, uh, although it may be that as well. Uh, and that's the futurist position. And that is looking for uh, the majority of the fulfillment of Revelation to take place at some future point. And actually, a lot of the events uh, are, are supposedly going to take place in a very short time frame, something like seven years from beginning to end, when they begin to unfold. Uh, and so where a preterist says all this happened in a relatively short time frame in the past, a futurist says all this is going to happen in a relatively short time frame in the future. And a historist says this happens over a long period of time uh, from the beginning all the way to the end of mm. history. Uh, the fourth well view uh, basically reads the book of Revelation and, and sees it all as symbolic or spiritual in its meaning. And so it's this uh, grand allegory, if you will, and it's talking about the conflict between uh, the, the workers of evil and the kingdom of darkness against Christ and the kingdom of light, and everything then is interpreted in that allegorical fashion. Uh, so those are your four major perspectives uh, with with some variance between them. And so there are those who maybe have a historicist perspective that, that we're still in the midst of seeing all of these things play out piece by piece. Uh, but they might be a historicist who also sees spiritual or interprets it symbolically that even though these events have happened or will happen, uh, as one of my uh, favorite authors, Leon Cass, uh, states it's not that it has happened but that it always happens uh, he made that statement in reference to uh, the mm -hmm. destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in his commentary on Genesis he says it's not that Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction happened uh, that's not the point of the text the point is that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah always happens to cities and civilizations that walk this path and so that's kind of that spiritualist symbolic mm -hmm. interpretation there uh, so someone could be a historicist gotcha. and a spiritualist at the same time in their interpretation or revelation. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I grew up uh, in the Assemblies of God, a very high charismatic Pentecostal movement. And basically, all I was taught was, was a futurist view uh yeah. you know like right next to tim lay in the left behind series is very much kind of very kind of fantastical and um and it really kind of captures the imaginations of a lot of um, people who have that pentecostal bent i've always kind of struggled with that and um i you know and that's why when you when you ask me well how do you see it i i didn't know any of these terms and I didn't, I just said, well, this is what makes sense to me at 35, okay? And take it for what it is. And, and you, you said, <laughs> you're a partial preterist spiritualist, which is like, I don't even know what, you know, I don't even know how to spell preterist, but okay. Wait, so, so what does uh, a partial preterist spiritualist uh, mean? Well, like, what, sure. Like, well, I mean, this, the simplest way to say that is uh, when you read the book of Revelation, uh, the events that are described in the, in the first 19 chapters, uh, you read as uh, 
really stylized language, symbolic language that's describing the events that took place uh, right after the writing of the letter, sometimes during the writing of the letter, the persecutions that were taking place under the Roman emperors uh, leading up to the, the expansion of the church around the world. And you're, you're connecting these prophetic statements uh, in this highly stylized language to those events. Uh, and it seems clear to you. So in that way, it's very much like the historicist, but you know, the historicist kind of drags that process out throughout uh, this long history that we've experienced since then. Whereas a preterist really does believe, you no, know, these events by and large were fulfilled uh, with, within a couple years, a generation for sure, uh, of the writing of the text. Uh, and usually they, they mm-hmm. believe the text was written fairly early, uh, you know, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so a lot of these events are actually about that destruction that took place uh, and the kind of cataclysmic shift and yeah. the end of the age of the old covenant and the dawn of the age of the new covenant when mm-hmm. Christ becomes apparently, very obviously, the focus not, not just of, uh, say, Jews, but of all people everywhere. Uh, and so that, that's that kind of partial preterist, and we say mm-hmm. partial because, as I said before, a, a full preterist believes even the return of Jesus has already taken place. As a partial preterist, uh, I would say, kind of logically looks at that and says, well, obviously the full manifestation of the kingdom of God is not here in the way <laughs> that it was promised. And so yeah. there are some things that have yet to be fulfilled uh, in the yeah. second coming. Uh, and then the spiritualist side would be, Nonetheless, despite the fact that these prophecies have been fulfilled, uh, just like many of the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ or, or that we see their fulfillment in the church, that doesn't mean they cannot then be used uh, and applied to our lives in some way and that these aren't seen as a repeated fulfillment throughout our, our own lives or in other times in the history of the church. So there are lessons to be gleaned and applied. Mm. Yeah, I, I, so I'm a partial preterist, and what keeps me from being a full-on preterist is I watch the news, <laughs> and I have a church full of people that are hurting, and I live in a neighborhood full of people that are hurting, and, I, and I'm hurt, you know, and so I, I, the, the, I can't logically be a preterist, and not saying, you know, I'm not talking to anyone, just like, obviously the kingdom has not fully broken in, you know, we're, we're still in that process. But that, that's what makes that's what makes sense to me, and um, and I remember being a kid and uh, being growing up with the futurist view and just always being scared of the beast. Yeah. And and then you read and then and this is where the the spiritual or symbolic comes in is like oh the beast is Rome, and I thought it was an actual beast. You know like no no the beast is the government. You know, and uh, it, so that's where you know a partial predator spiritual that makes sense to me. That's. That's kind of the the only way I kind of stop scratching my head reading the book. Yeah. Um, but I know other people don't don't they don't land there, and you know, God bless them. That's fine. I just that's where I land. And I always thought, it, and I was like, I thought it was crazy until I met you. So <laughs> now we're both crazy. We're both crazy. So it's good. Yeah. Um, so f- you know, for many people, they you know, for many reasons, um, most of them bad, get 
their eschatology or or at least get their frame of reference for it uh, from Revelation and um, and maybe you know other novels or whatever. But um, you you know I you shared something with me that I didn't know, which was kind of the, a brief history of the formation of the creeds and then when Revelation was canonized and how the church uh, councils went about. Can you share? This is brilliant. It's so wonderful. And so many people, I, I guarantee you, everybody listening to this has no idea the timeline that you're about to unpack. <laughs> and I, it just makes sense to me. So okay. can you share what you shared with me on the phone yeah, last month? Absolutely. I do want to make this comment, and I, and I hope it's not out of turn, but I, I had this uh, memory while you were talking about you know, this idea of the beast and how terrifying it is. And honestly, if I have a critique of a futurist position uh, at any level, uh, which, which of course, you know, if you take one position by definition, you're, you're not taking the other. But if I had a critique of the futurist position, it would be its tendency to uh, basically uh, turn the return of Jesus into a frightening event. Uh, mm, that we yeah. look at the end of, of time as this uh, apocalyptic terror, and we, and yeah. these these images of a beast and and uh, the the just absolutely terrifying things that are going to be on the earth at the mm. time uh, causes mm-hmm. children. It's a it causes nightmares in children. I mean, my mom yeah. used to yeah. she used to laugh and tell me about uh, waking up. Uh, she took a nap in the daytime and woke up and it was you know evening and the and the lights were out and. She thinks she was left behind and, and you know, just terrified, mm-hmm. literally frightened that somehow, some way, things were going to go uh, poorly for her. And, and I thought, that just yeah. cannot be the effect of mm-hmm. looking forward to the return of Jesus. That, that's certainly not what I read in the <laughs> New Testament as the apostles have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it does make mm-hmm. me wonder, it, why, why do we hold these things? Where does that fear come from? And I think it largely mm. does come from the fact that people are using this um, this apocalyptic book uh, that needs to be interpreted uniquely uh, as their primary source for what's going to happen in the end. Uh, I love, I think it was Eugene Peterson who said, you know, if you really want to know the best way to approach the book of Revelation and, and, and how to read it, and they're saying it's actually kind of like reading The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it, it, it's yeah. so full of symbolism and mm-hmm. has all of these, these fantastical elements that are not intended to give you a literal idea of what's going to happen. You're not going to be attacked by a fire demon from hell in your sleep. That's uh, not the picture. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love that idea that there's a lot of richness to find in the book of Revelation, but it has to be addressed in the right way. Um, it, mm-hmm. it's a, a piece of literature in that way. Still is true, still has truth in it, uh, but has to be read the way it was intended. Uh, with that in mind, knowing how it was written, when it was written, and then how the church received it is really kind of crucial. So what, what yes. most people don't understand about uh, the kind of the way the text came together, you know, there are all kinds of scholarly discussions about when, Different books of the Bible were written, different theories, and some people, you know, put forward the idea that the entire text of the New Testament, all of the letters of Paul and the Gospels and even the book of Revelation were completed before the year 70 A.D. 
because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and it doesn't make sense that that information wouldn't make it into the text as a reference, considering the content of what the New Testament's talking about, that cataclysmic event of the fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus himself talked about, why wouldn't they just say, and this has come to pass, if it had not already done so? And so people uh, will put the dates early. And then, of course, others say, no, no, it was written much later, and uh, some even put it as far as 200 A.D., uh, when the last, uh, uh, when the ink dried on the last page, uh, but that <laughs> what's interesting is even even if you believe in an early writing process or a late writing process, the the scriptures as we see it as a whole, as understanding it as a collection of writings that are authoritative, uh, that process took some time, and the deal is, the church received these texts and passed them around, and some texts were treated as authoritative, and other texts were treated as less authoritative, and some texts were appreciated by part of the church, and others didn't appreciate the same texts. And so what happened is over time, uh, they would look for, all right, what's the, uh, what's the authority of these different writings? And so there were some rules that kind of played out. The text had to be in some way associated with uh, an apostle, uh, an eyewitness to the resurrection, uh, uh, preferably one of the 12 that Jesus gave authority to, to establish his church. And so the Gospels are all associated, either written by an apostle or by a disciple of an apostle, uh, presumably at their request and with the information they gave them. Uh, you know, Paul, of course, was not one of the original 12, but he was an eyewitness to the resurrection and, and claims to have met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. And so all of these uh, give these letters and these writings weight. And then the next piece is, did the church benefit from the writing? Did they resonate with what the apostles had handed to them, had told them, had talked to them about in the life of Jesus? And to the extent that they were in agreement, those texts had the authority of the apostles. Uh, and so that process continued over time. And finally, the church began to gather in councils to make uh, decisions about what are the implications of the Word of God for a particular situation. And so the first council we have recorded, of course, is, is the council that takes place in the book of Acts, where James presides in Jerusalem, and they're discussing whether or not to let Gentiles uh, into the church and what are the requirements that are laid on them. Uh, and so the church continued to gather together in council uh, about things that were uh, important. And uh, when the Emperor Constantine finally uh, made Christianity uh, legal again, uh, it, was, it was never uh, legal to, to practice the Christian faith openly, uh, really, until Constantine. And then he took it a step further and made it the official religion of the empire. Uh, he, he convened uh, mm -hmm. more than one council, actually, in order to kind of lay to rest some of the disagreements that were taking place about who the church is and what the church believes. And these became very formative 
for what we hold to be the foundational teachings of the church today. Uh, it was in the, the Council of Nicaea uh, that we actually have uh, the formation and adoption of the creeds that we use as the summary of Christian doctrine that all Christians of all times and all places believe these things. Uh, we have the words of the apostles and the Nicene Creed that many of us recite uh, in our worship services. Those come to us, and they were gathered together. By 365 A.D., we have those words already on the page and uh, accepted by the church as true and authoritative. Uh, what's interesting about the timeline is, at that time, the majority of what we call the canon of Scripture, the Old and the New Testaments, uh, were ratified, confirmed, and agreed to be the Word of God by the church. In, at the same time as the acceptance of those two creeds, which they use to determine what are the teachings of the church. Uh, at that time, however, two books that we currently have in the canon uh, were not agreed upon yet. Uh, those two books are the Revelation uh, that we have our discussion about today and the book of Hebrews. And the story goes basically the, the church in the West uh, really loved and used and discussed uh, the book of Revelation. They used it in their worship services, and, uh, and it was a part of what they drew benefit from. And the church uh, in the East did not. Uh, and so they were just they were in conflict with each other. Uh, but the book of Hebrews was also up for discussion. So basically as a compromise... In around the year uh, 395, I believe, could be off a couple years, that the Council of uh, uh, Chalcedon, where they actually accepted uh, those last two books as part of the canon. Um, so, the book of Revelation was the last book to be added to the canon. It was done after the formation of the creeds, and therefore really shouldn't be used to establish doctrine on any fundamental belief of the church. Uh, that is a really key concept when we discuss what does this book mean. Uh, it, it really should not be where we get our end times theology. Yeah. That's so key. So so let me, let me summarize. Is this, I think, if people understand this timeline and what seems to be a logical conclusion from it, which is the early church settled the basics of our doctrine, what we believe, by 365. That's when, uh, roughly, right? It's when, when, when the, the, the creeds were set in stone, the concrete's dry, 365. And Revelation would not be canonized or considered, you know, full-on Holy Scripture for another 30 years, which means they didn't reference Revelation for any doctrine on the second coming or uh, judgment or, you know, the rapture or, you know, any of that, right? And so that's like, well, if the early church didn't do it, why do we do that sometimes? The other thing that stands out to me is... Uh, that was so Revelation was canonized around 395, 396, or somewhere around there. And you know, there's debate on when it was written, but 
you know, most kind of think is written around 90, 95-ish, right? Uh, so depending on the markers, okay, but is, is that Revelation basically hung out there for 300 years, give or take a decade or so, until it was considered scripture, right? Right. right okay, so America is 242 years old, says Google. <laughs> right, so, so, so this just shows you just how long Revelation hung out there. Is it longer than America's been a nation uh, so far? And now, don't say it to, to uh, discredit or diminish it. It's just, I think it's helpful to put it in, in, in the proper context and place and to know, you know, what it's for. And, right. and like you're saying, uh, to me, that timeline, knowing when it was written, how long it took to canonize it, and that it was canonized 30 years after the creeds, that's all, the, that's all the argument I need to say, yeah, I'm not getting my core doctrine from this book. Well, and then there's the basic rule of interpretation is you never use an unclear or obscure passage right. to interpret a clear uh, passage of Scripture. It's always you use the clear and understandable passages yep. to interpret those passages that are obscure. That's a rule of hermeneutics of interpretation uh, that the church has, has mm -hmm. uh, always wanted to follow. It hasn't always followed it, but, but has put out there as, this is a basic, we get our doctrine from the clear teachings. And those parts that are harder to understand, that are a little bit more murky, uh, we, we have to handle more carefully and go to other places for those doctrines. And so, uh, you know, using the text of Scripture the way it was intended to be used is crucial. And I always tell people, I said, look, if, if, you're, if you're reading the letters of Paul, and you get to the request of Paul to Timothy that he, the next time he comes to visit, that he bring his cloak. If, if you've determined already in advance that, that you have to use this passage of Scripture in some spiritual way, you're, you're very quickly going to uh, make it mean things it never was supposed to mean. If you try to get doctrine out of Timothy bringing Paul <laughs> his cloak, it's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And so using the book according to its intent, uh, is one of the things we have to do. That's good. Uh, and, and interpreting this passage in the light of other clear passages is our best bet. Uh, so we should go elsewhere to determine our eschatology. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's my next question. If someone's listening and we've just blown their entire foundation up for their worldview on uh, the restoration of all things and, and the second coming and, and all that... In their left, well, what do they believe? Where, where, where should we go in the scriptures to, to define? And we don't have to get into what that looks like, but just you know, give some people some places to look up to to start sure. there. Those clear places. Well, I mean, anywhere that that the New Testament re refers to the return of Jesus uh, is where you want to go, and so uh, Paul uh, almost always does that by beginning with the work of Jesus and the resurrection, and then he kind of carries it through to its natural end and its natural uh, future focus. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he begins talking about what Christ accomplished in his resurrection, and then he turns to the future in the resurrection of the dead that will happen, and then he begins to describe what it looks like mm 
when Christ returns and begins to put all things in their proper order. Uh, and so he goes after that into the resurrection of the body, what will it look like, what will it be like. There's so much rich information there that we can begin to understand that Paul lays out for us. Uh, similarly, he, he talks about, uh, kind of in brief fashion, uh, the references the return of Christ in Colossians, again, linking it to the resurrection, Colossians mm-hmm. chapter 3. He says, you know, since we uh, have been raised with Christ, uh, and then he goes into, for we died, and because we died with Christ, we will, Christ who is our life, when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. So there's this kind of quick statement of we participated in his death, so we'll participate in his return. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you can, you can glean so much about what, what that's going to be and be like. Uh, and then, of course, he, he writes in the letter to the Thessalonians, both First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. First uh, Thessalonians 4, he talks uh, a bit about what the end will look like and the resurrection of the dead. So it's really important to see that in the context. And if you're wanting, you know, uh, the, the kind of apocalyptic language and look at it, of course, a lot of people believe the, the Olivet Discourse where, where uh, Jesus is talking about the end of the age. They interpret that in a futurist fashion, and uh, you know they, they'll they'll look at the return of Christ there, uh, which there are again different perspectives even of that text. So you can always go to those other passages to get a clearer understanding of of what's going on uh, when Christ talks about the end of time. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder how, um, like even in the Old Testament. Like some of the stuff of Daniel, um, like how that kind of plays into this as well. Um, well, it what, plays into. What, I mean, it plays into uh, the futurist interpretation of Revelation quite heavily. Uh, what's interesting about that? What I what I love about what futurists do in the connection to some of the Old Testament prophets is uh, they use the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and, and, I mean, one, one must. How about, how about that? Yeah, in, in understanding Revelation, uh, although I wouldn't link them, uh, I wouldn't link them in a timeline, I would absolutely link them in language. Uh, there's so much Old Testament prophetic language used in Revelation, you really can't understand what it means if you're not steeped in the prophetic tradition uh, of uh, Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, in, in fact, uh, a lot of the early church, they would read the book of Revelation uh, liturgically with the book of Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's parallels. You can almost read them side by side a, as a call and response, as a New Testament version of an Old Testament idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the idea of Ezekiel coming through rather than the prediction of events in the future is a description of what's happening in the heavenly realms. And so what you end up with is this, this book that's describing the worship service going on all the time in the presence of God. Uh, and that, to me, is such a, a stunning idea and a, and a beautiful way. Um, if, if we minimize the book of Revelation in its eschatological focus, uh, I'd be very quick to say, but let's not minimize it in its impact for what it offers the church 
in beauty in the presentation of how we are to approach the throne of God in worship. Uh, we get so many incredible, stunning even uh, lyrics to our greatest hymns right there mm-hmm. out of the book of Re- Revelation as the saints of God and the angels uh, worship around the throne. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and reading it liturgically becomes uh, one of the most powerful ways to read the book. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I think I shared on Sunday it, it, the the point of Revelation is the lamb wins. <laughs> and uh, and if, if after reading this, you're not stirred to worship, something's wrong. You know, like, like the, the, the points with the worship of Jesus, not um, are you going to get the mark of the beast or not. You know? Right. Um, but one scares <laughs> and the other one doesn't. And, uh, you know, if I learn anything about humans is uh, we, we, we kind of like to be scared. And, and you know, <laughs> it's kind of just the primal motivation for some reason. What, um, okay, so <clears throat> last question is, uh, you know, there, there's kind of these big, uh, well, let me back up. I love looking at this as like John was kind of, the first version of C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, yeah, or um, or, or J.K. Rowling. He was the he was the, kind of the first one on the scene. Maybe he's not the first one, but you, you get the point. Is he just has this really fantastic imagery, full uh, this cosmic battle, you know, good and evil, um, and uh, and so I think looking looking at Revelation from that sense scares me less than the the, uh, the futurist view that which is what I grew up with, and so um, you know there's the beast, there's the dragon, uh, there's the mark of the beast, the six six six, all that. Um, but he, this is one of the craziest things about the scripture, and uh, you made this connection for me. I'd like for you to unpack a little bit, but there is, uh, I think Proverbs might be one of the most practical books of the Bible. Um, I love reading the proverb of the day. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just kind of, it's there. Um, in Revelation, you know, some might say, this is one of the most impractical, like I don't even understand it, much less put it in practice. But there's this incredible connection between the most practical book of the Bible, Proverbs, and Revelation, in that they share some characters that we often, we, we just miss it. Um, can, you sh- can you maybe just point out those, uh, those two ladies that show up um, fr- I think from Proverbs into Revelation, kind of what they mean, how we should interpret them. Yeah, absolutely. Or one way to interpret it. And this is a great example of, of what I mean when I say Revelation really uses prophetic language. Uh, you know, we make this, this uh, major distinction between the writings of the prophets and the wisdom literature, but, um, you know, it was all considered uh, prophetic utterance by the writers of the New Testament. So, when they borrowed ideas, and this is what I really believe the book Revelation does here, borrows this picture of two different women that's presented to us in the Proverbs and, and, and in a couple Psalms as well, some wisdom Psalms and, and, a, and then a, and some prophetic motifs. You get uh, this picture of two women and it's Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. Uh, and Lady Folly is, you can almost always in wisdom literature just kind of cut it down the middle. And you know, everything that's bad is foolish, and everything that's mm-hmm. good is wise. And so Lady Folly is a seductress. She's an adulteress. She's a whore. 
uh, prostitute. Uh, Lady Wisdom is a virgin or a bride who who is virtuous and who you know, kind of plays that role of of shining and 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 presenting her bridegroom in a particular light. So as soon as you see those two ladies show up in Revelation, you've got this one woman who's crowned with the stars, and you've got the the picture of the one who's called the Bride of Christ. Uh, And it's Mm -hmm. that throwback to Lady Wisdom. And why is she Lady Wisdom? Well, she is the bride to the eternal Logos. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. picture shows up. And what happens then is if you've got this, well, Lady Wisdom then is connected to the true king and is submitted and concerned only with the service of the true king. Uh, but there's another lady in Revelation, and she's, you know, this the whore of Babylon. It's such such a, <laughs> what a great line, right? I mean, that, yeah. that is a character that will grab someone's imagination. Uh, but the whore of Babylon is, is riding <laughs> the back of the beast. I mean, like, this is just epic. Uh, it, it's Lady Folly. It's the one who has, instead of uh, submitting herself to the rule of the rightful king, is continuing to pursue power and wealth and gain in life by going after earthly powers. And so at that, at that point, you see, well, if Christ is the true ruler and you have a real unity between the bride and the bridegroom in their proper relationship, then the beast is earthly power. And is, mm-hmm. if she's the whore of Babylon, this is the beast is the political power systems that are in the world that are used to basically combat the kingdom of God. And you, know, you might even take it a step for, further and say, you know, it's not just anyone who is on the back of that beast, but perhaps those who had claimed to follow Christ, but instead have given themselves over in the pursuit of political power to Rome or to the political power of the government, whatever it may be of the time. Uh, And so, again, whatever your particular uh, uh, vision here of whether you're a historicist or a futurist, uh, you don't have to believe in a a, a literal mythical beast uh, that's terrifying. Uh, It can Mm -hmm. still be a governmental system, and and the woman on the back would at that point be the church that has now turned to political power as a means yeah. to an end uh, and has therefore uh, kind of uh, hoard herself out, if you will, uh, oh, yeah. uh, against her true uh, bridegroom. And so, Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so uh, are, would John be warning the early church of the dangers of getting in bed with um, with the Roman government or the political powers or with Constantine or whoever is that kind of when he puts that image out there of Lady Folly, uh, you know, getting on the back of the beast, is that is that kind of what he's saying? Is like, hey, watch out. I think we must at least uh, be open to that very real possibility that he he is saying this because a lot of what he's describing in Revelation is is what. Uh, human government does with the kingdom of God. And so you're mm-hmm. reading about persecution and you're reading about the struggle and the, the back and the forth. And so uh, it's, it's really hard not to read that as a warning uh, against 
hey, this is a seductive power. Um, and yeah. if you attach yourself to it, you're actually um, moving away from the true Jerusalem and you are becoming uh, the Babylon uh, that will be destroyed. Um, so I think we have to read it that way. Yeah, I agree. I, so you have these, we have these, these characters. So, you, you know, the dragon is, is Satan uh, fighting against the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus, yeah. right? The beast would be working for the dragon, um, which would be you know the, the political powers or whatever. And then you you have either uh, you know is the church because uh, because this is really about I think you know Revelation is, is this is a, a peak I think behind the cosmic pa- the, the cosmic battle, and the church is like we're in the middle of it you know like welcome to the suffering yeah. you know there's going to be persecution and. And so you get this encouragement. It's like, hey, church, don't, don't get on the back of the beast. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, hold, don't hold yourself out. You know, stay, stay true to be the bride of, of the lamb, you know. Um, I, I kind of wonder if that, I mean, that's how I, that makes sense to me. Okay, so um, if that interpretation, I wonder if that would have changed things in, in Nazi <laughs> Germany. If, if, the, if the German church got this message of revelation it said watch out for the beast don't get hypnotized don't cozy up you know be lady wisdom i i, I wonder uh, how different history would be i wonder if we would know more than bonhoeffer yeah. you know because bonhoeffer was the outlier right he, he wasn't <laughs> you know he, he, he was the odd man out when it came to the church and in nazi germany i, I wonder you know, even in our day, um, the how would John characterize the beast if he was writing to us today? Uh, I think it, it'd be like a hybrid. It'd be a mixed breed. It'd be part elephant, part yeah, donkey. That's a monster right? for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and and uh, and okay, this is so now 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 we're starting. Okay, it only took us like an hour to get into this, but. Um, Man, when when the Supreme Court, uh, he, uh, uh, he, I don't know what you call it, when 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 the stuff with uh, Judge Kavanaugh and um, Dr. Ford came out in the fall, that's the beast. Just both sides, you know, foaming at the mouth, wanting to devour, and let's let's put these two people out there and and make. Put this, make this thing private, or make this private thing just really public and nasty, and you know, in right, we there's like lots of issues there, right? But but when you zoom back and you go, okay, let let's let's not, like I I did a whole sermon on sexual harassment for an hour, so I think I can say this, but let's just move that to the side for a second. But you, you just saw our government just foaming at the mouth. And then look at and then Facebook. I didn't even have to, I didn't have to look at. It. it was a dumpster fire. It might still be on fire from it, you know. But I think that's just the to me as a pastor. I look at that, and I'm I think I'm pretty nonpartisan. Um, it's it just the, the carnage that is out there when we put our allegiance in one of these earthly powers. And I know God can use. Men, godly men and women in the government. To, you know, I, I know that, but but for the most part, I mean, it's just every day. If you 
if you can't see the government as a beast, I don't know what else to tell you. Right. You know, it's 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 pretty. Well, I mean, it's there, an interesting so. tension. I think this is what we end up having to struggle with anytime we deal with well, what are the practical realities of our faith. Well, we we know the promise uh, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And so, if that's the case, then uh, the kingdom of the world submitted to the King properly ruling from the heavens is a good and a right and a just and a joyful celebratory thing. Uh, but when that kingdom raises its head in, in rebellion and tries to, it begins to follow the ways of the dragon, and that is to, to try to dethrone Christ, well, now you have the beast uh, you know, it, it, what has what was a good and a right and a, and a joyful thing has now become uh, a, an evil, tainted, and dangerous thing. And mm. uh, you know, this is the story mm. of of humanity and its relation with God. From the yeah, beginning. right. Yeah. You know, the dragon yeah. was with us in the garden. Uh, it, it, we used a different word, but you know, the serpent in in Genesis three, it, it's it's you know, the curse of the serpent was that it would crawl on its belly. Uh, and eat dust. Mm-hmm. Well, before it was crawling on its mm-hmm. on its belly, it must have been walking around, and you know, a walking serpent that is crafty is nothing other than the dragon of all mythological right. stories. And so, we end up with this picture of, yeah, the dragon has been warring against the heavens, and convinced the human race to join him in that war, but we had that promise even in the garden, that. The seed of the woman, that is a human being, would rise up and overthrow and destroy the dragon. And so when humanity steps into the role of following the, the anointed one, the Christ, in his work to overthrow Satan, we are the bride of that prophesied Messiah. Uh, but when we turn and reject and we go away from then the bride has yet again become the prostitute. And so now we have these stories told in epic proportions in Genesis to Revelation. So it's, it's a pretty cool bookend to the story. Mm, yeah. That's good. All right. <clears throat> Last, and there's so much. I mean, we're an hour in, so there's so much. Um, we're not even scratching the surface, but... Uh, to me, this has been helpful just to give like an, kind of a general overview of some helpful things I think as a pastor are, are good to know about this book. Uh, the last one, uh, you know, as a kid, okay, I remember driving, there, there were two things uh, that scared me from the scripture. One um, was, was uh, there's a you know, scripture about the, the moon being turned to blood. I remember driving and uh, seeing the harvest moon. <laughs> As a kid, one day, it's like the moon was huge and it was like orange, and I thought, "Oh crap, I missed," you know. And then, um, and then the other thing that was actually the most most scary was the mark of the beast. And I remember having, I remember being at church and there was a, you know, I was I was a good kid at church, but I was there was one of the heathens, one of the kids that was always in trouble. He was around me, and uh, I remember he had he was having this conversation. He's like, "Hey man, if I get uh, if I get left behind." Um, which I'm probably gonna get left behind. I'm. Uh, he was planning on getting left behind, and he's like, uh, "I'm just. I'm. I'm not taking the mark." 
you know, like that's when I'm going to be serious with you my take the mark. And so this was our youth group is we'd have these conversations on who's going to take the mark if we get left behind, who's not. And, and so this, this, uh, this mark of the beast, this, you know, six, 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 it was just so terrifying to me. And, uh, I was kind of taught, you know, it's this like microchip that's going to be in your forehead or your hand. And that's how you're going to buy groceries. If you don't have it, you know, and, um, and now, I mean, Actually, um, I know a guy who, he's got an iPhone, and he's got the new one where it'll unlock with his face if he just looks at it, and he will not um, put his fingerprint or his face ID on the phone because he believes that that Apple and Facebook and Google are one step away from from uh, the mark of the beast, and uh, and that's you know that's his interpretation. God bless him. But it was it was just kind of this like incredible uh, interpretation of that the, now here, here's I'm gonna you know if we haven't offended anyone yet I'm I'm gonna share what what is really intriguing to me and I'm trying to do it in a really graceful way because I don't want to I don't want to shame anybody but it's more of a question you can tell me that's stupid but um, one the, the interpretation there's there's a lot of interpretation and one basically Everyone basically says we don't really know. We kind of know. The one of them is you know six is the number of man because we were made on the the, the sixth day. Seven is the number of completion, and so you know six 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 is you know man's ultimate number, and it's the the, the ultimate sign of independence from God or whatever, um, or it's the sign of the it's the number of the flesh, and you know you can interpret it those ways. The 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 interpretation that makes sense to me is that uh, someone called the Mark of the Beast the anti-Shema. And that really made sense to me if, if we understand what the Shema was. Now, you're a Bible teacher, so you can correct me if I'm, if I'm off on any of this, but um, you know, Shema is love the Lord your God by your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, bind it on your, you know, on your forehead, put it around your, your, um, your hand, your wrist, and then put it on the doorpost of your house okay now i know that's like a very very quick and dirty summary yeah, that's, that's but is basically that correct. basically right okay all right so so i think for anyone wanting to understand or he has questions about the marvies go to deuteronomy and learn about the shema which is love the lord love your neighbor let your thoughts you know be full of that let the doings of your hand be full of that and make sure your home is marked as um a place where if people come into your home they're going to encounter the love of the Lord and the love of neighbor. Um, I saw a video of this widow in the Czech Republic, and she's got a little bronze plaque on her house. She took this literally, and in, in her language it says, this house is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, and when you walk into the house, you're going to encounter the love of the Lord, and you're going to be loved. And I thought, what a great... It's a widow in the Czech Republic mm. living in the Shema. How great is that, Okay. Well, if six, six, if the mark of the beast is the anti-Shema, then, then, what, then what does that mean? It, I think it means, or this is what makes sense to me, is when we put the love of uh, something else and, and the beast, if the beast is wrong, or the beast is the government, uh, when we put the love of the government or the ho- we put our hope in the government more than anything or a party or a candidate, and that's on top of our mind, that's all we think about. And it's it's around our wrist. It's it's everything we do is all about that cause. And even 
you know, we don't have to put it on our door on our doorpost anymore. We we got a, a yard sign <laughs> that says, "Hey, here's who I'm for." I wonder. Now, this is like what can start a grass fire pretty quickly. I wonder um, when somebody gets so worked up about their political party or cause or viewpoint or whatever to the point where it's the primary shaper of what they think and feel and it's the primary shaper of what they do and it's the primary and, and, and they let everyone know. I wonder, is that the mark of the beast? Now, I say, you know, and I have, I have friends I love that have yard signs, okay? So I'm not, I don't, I'm not necessarily thinking, hey, you got the mark of the beast. I'm just wondering, like, is that what that means, you know? Um, that seems more legitimate than a microchip in my forehead, but that's, I don't know. That, that, that's what the anti-Shema means to me at this point in my life. Um, so I don't know. That, I don't say it to discourage political involvement. I'm just... You know, I think there's there's extremes playing here. No, is not that crazy? Is that, think, is that stupid? Uh, what we end up with, what we have to come to a decision on is, are we going to take uh, a book that is using uh, very figurative language and try to force certain elements of it into a very literal interpretation? And uh, if if we do... Mm-hmm. If we do that with Revelation, we've got to go all the way back through with Isaiah, who uses similar language, and Ezekiel, and uh, even all the way into our Genesis reading. And we have to be that kind of hyper-literal, and it makes for a really bizarre reading of the text. Um, it, it makes it impossible mm-hmm. to yeah. read metaphor anywhere, uh, or at least rather haphazardly. Uh, that people just kind of choose what they right. want to, to be literal and not. And so uh, in these, in these uh, examples where everything is uh, clearly pointing to something else, I think it's important that we, that we say, okay, this, this makes sense. This anti-Shema uh, coming under the rule of another who is a false king or a false power, uh, it must be the effect mm of that yep. in the same way that the Shema would be the effect mm-hmm. of coming under the, the rule of the covenant God. Uh, it just makes perfect sense to me. Well, it does to me too. And um, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be uh, digging into a really neglected book of the Bible um, because it's kind of turned people away from Jesus it, it, its point is to actually, I think, is to turn people to them and to encourage them, not to scare the, the heck out of them. So, you've been um, really, really helpful. I know um, there's, you know, you could write novels on this stuff. <laughs> there's so much we could get into in a discussion service. Those are the questions I had. I really hope that they were uh, helpful to people listening. And if not, well, sorry. Um, but it's uh, it was really good connecting with you, Austin. And you'll be in San Antonio in January, right? I You're will. I'll be uh, uh, coming to worship with you and, and uh, folks who serve uh, January 20th. Uh, so. Are you really? Nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
I, I'm planning to be there right. Sunday morning, so I look forward to, to being with you all. Oh, good, man. Seeing you in person. I will, uh, I think I'm going to call in sick that day, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'll, make, I'll see if Jake can preach on the 20th. <laughs> uh, don't do that. I was <laughs> oh, kidding. No, well, we're uh, looking forward to it. We'd love to, uh, to take you to a good spot to eat afterwards if, you, if, you'd, if you'd be up for it. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, there you have it. I know we did not answer most of the questions that could be out there. And if that's the case, welcome to studying the Bible. This is following Jesus. We are always learning. We are disciples. We are constantly sitting at the feet. And as I encourage you to keep learning, to keep asking questions, and to keep digging in, I just want to just say, hey, the best way to do that is with humility and with love and with grace and to do it without demonizing other people who may understand things differently. If you're studying with us during Epiphany, I want to encourage you to jump into the seven letters to the seven churches and to uh, use that grid um, that we're introducing, which is asking these two questions. Jesus, what is your affirmation? And two, what is your admonition? Um, for me. I I think that's just a helpful spiritual practice to get into. I want to invite you into it. Uh, I want to say special thanks to my buddy Chad Jarnigan from Nashville who um, wrote that music that we use, gave it to us royalty free. And uh, looking forward to a great season of Epiphany with you. We love you. God bless you.